the holy prosecutor. So I want to open up. I just want to read verse 8 because that, that kind of forms the, the main idea, and then we're going to talk about that. So after Jesus says about the helper coming, and if I go, I will send him to you, he then picks up and he says, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Scott Turow begins his novel, Presumed Innocent, with the words of a prosecuting attorney named Rusty. Rusty is talking to the audience, explaining his approach to the jury when he's in court. So Rusty says this. He says, this is how I always start out. He lets the courtroom know, he lets the jury know that I am the prosecutor. I represent the state. And I am here to present to you the evidence of a crime. Together you will weigh the evidence, you will deliberate upon it, and you will decide if it proves the defendant's guilt. And he says, this man, and he points. And he says, if you don't have the courage to point, they're not going to have the courage to convict. And so I point, he says, and I extend my hand across the courtroom, and I hold one finger straight, and I seek the defendant's eye. And I say, this man has been accused. Can you imagine even me? Kind of getting a little intimidating, right? <laughs> Start pointing my finger. Hey, Mark, Pastor Mark, take that somewhere else, please. Can you imagine? You can, it's, uh, tension's palpable, isn't it? Imagine being in that courtroom and being that man or that woman that this prosecuting attorney is now pointing his or her finger directly at you. The Holy Spirit works in a very similar fashion with those in this world who do not believe in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's worldwide mission is one of personal prosecution. The Holy Spirit points the finger. The Holy Spirit represents heaven. And here in this context, one of the primary missions of the Holy Spirit is to convince or to prosecute, to convict the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. D.A. Carson says this, he, he drives home the personal conviction in an individual's heart and mind. So the Holy Spirit for us is our defense attorney, isn't he? Not our defense attorney against God, but our defense attorney against the accuser and sometimes our own thoughts and doubts. He reminds us of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ and reminds us of the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ and dispels the flaming arrows of the evil one. However, with the world, he is their prosecutor, representing all of heaven. 
representing God, representing Jesus Christ. And in this case, he doesn't, he doesn't convert, he convinces. Conversion comes after the convincing if the individual who is convinced enters a plea for mercy. But conversion doesn't happen all the time because some people actually enter a plea of what? Innocent. I disagree with you, Holy Spirit. So his job here is one of conviction or proving to individuals, and it must come before regeneration. Some of this refuse, some refuse this conviction, though. I love this passage. You know why? It's so logical. It was so easy to break down. Uh, he has a main idea, which is the prosecuting aspect, and then prosecuting or convincing or convicting in these three areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment. But I want us to also see how, how this applies to us. Who is the Holy Spirit going to? What is one of the primary ways that he does this ministry? Through all of us sitting here today. And we have to see that the topics are, that are mentioned, the themes that he focuses on, are not ones that we always want to bring up at the Christmas dinner. Can you imagine going to Christmas dinner and, being like, and someone be like, hey, what do you guys want to talk about? It's good to see you. Well, I got three things I want to talk about. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. <laughs> the, room, the room would be entirely <laughs> cleared at that moment. And so now we see, because if it were left up to us to bring these, topic up, these topics up, are the, is it going to happen? Probably not. These aren't the things that you're, you know, you're hanging out with your, your friends and you're like, hey, let's talk about judgment. Let's talk about... So the Holy Spirit has to work through us. He empowers us. This is such a great passage for evangelism because what we see is that, guess what? It's not my job to convince people, is it? It's my job to convey the truth. He does the convincing. This takes all of that pressure off of us, doesn't it? Because I'm always trying to convince. I'm always trying to persuade. I'm always trying to drag people into the kingdom of heaven. That's not up to me. But it is my job to what? Convey the truth. And here, this also gives a perfect layout of the key essential elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to witness to a community that needs Christ, these things should be present. It's the heart of the gospel. All three things that are mentioned just gives us this wonderful, easy, logical layout of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is only through his power, it is only through his ministry that this can happen. Three areas that we're going to look at, they can, they can break down into subjects and how those subjects relate to individuals. So I broke them down into, into subjects, but the three individuals that they relate to are ourselves or humanity, Jesus Christ, and Satan. So the first area, though, is he convicts the world of sin, verse 9. And as that sin relates to us. So he says, concerning sin, because they do not 
believe in me. Me drinking a lot of water. I'm getting worked up already. It's only five minutes in this. So you can see that the first topic that's mentioned in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as he comes to us, and as you and I go out into this world, as Jesus just said, you are going to what? Testify to the truth. What is the truth? It is the truth of sin. In 2020, there was a letter that was written to John Piper's ministry, Desiring God. And they said that this email, or this email, reflects a very common question that they get at their ministry. This is, and, and this is the email, and this is John Piper's response to it. Dear Pastor John, hello to you and the team at Desiring God. I am a relatively new Christian in Sweden, and I have a problem with my church. I got baptized four years ago and became a member. As time passed, I noticed our sermons don't talk about something. What, what do you think the subject is that their sermons don't talk about? If anyone guessed sin, you are correct. She says, our sermons don't touch on sin and never call for repentance. She says, I've asked the pastor about this. And he said, they are not preaching contradictory to the Bible. They just decided not to talk directly about sin. They want to focus on the love of Jesus and his acceptance of sinners. She says, it sounds well with me, that's okay, as an effort to attract a lot of people into church, but at the same time, they don't celebrate repentance and obedience. And then she asks, what do you think of a church like that? His answer, I think the church is profoundly defective, and it is also unfaithful to the Word of God. We have to ask ourselves the question, so many, many years ago, there was a book that was written in the 1970s about our culture at large, and it was entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? So now, that, that question was asked at the culture at large. Now, we, we need to ask that question about our churches, don't we? Whatever happened to talking about sin in church when the first topic that is mentioned in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers is what? Sin. And it is the sin of unbelief. It is the sin that makes all other sins stick to us. It is the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. It is sin singular, which refuses to believe the person, work, and words of Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus' assessment of themselves. I got to tell you, our job, my job, your job, is not to fill these seats. It's to fill the kingdom of heaven. That's our, that's our job. Well, we could do a whole bunch of things to get people here. I can set myself on fire every Sunday. Right? We can be like, it would be great. 
Maybe, well, I don't know if it would work every Sunday. I mean, one Sunday, and then that's it. You can give, you know, we, can, we can attract a ton of people. What drives me crazy, I'm getting, see, I got to slow it down, is this, this isn't love. It's not love if I don't tell you the truth. That's not love. If I'm a doctor and I know you have a disease, if, I'm so glad my doctor told me I had pneumonia. Can you imagine if he's just like, oh, you're going to be fine. It's going to be great. You're okay. Just, you know, hang out. You've got to tell them the truth. That's love. And, and the love expresses, the love of God is only understood fully when we see how guilty we are. That's how, that's how we can rejoice. That's how we praise God. When I realize what I have done, when I realize what a wretch that I am, and that he sent his son to die for me on a cross. That's how we realize that love. Yes, we could talk about Jesus' acceptance of sinners, but only when sinners accept the fact that they're sinners. Because if, 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 we, if we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. What am I saved from? And, and, and I know that it's not a popular topic, but it is an essential element of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are guilty before God. Instead of, we, instead of putting God on the stand, we need to be in that stand. And we do it all the time, and, and it has infiltrated our churches and what is happening is we're producing disciples of Jesus Christ that are preaching a false gospel. A gospel that's all about love. Neglecting this element. Unbelief is the condition that we find ourselves in. And because of that unbelief, we commit all other, all other sins. It results in a sinful life. And, and the, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, all of those things that we do are just symptoms to a greater disease. And that disease was brought on by Adam, a real historical person who sinned in the garden. And because of that, all of his children are sinners. We're born into sin. It's a condition, and the only answer to that condition is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you and me. That's it. And, and, and I'm, all, I'm all for sharing personal testimonies. I, I, I do it a lot, um, and I try to use what God is doing in my life or what he did in my life to, to bridge to the gospel and matter of fact, the other day I had had a, a, a chance to uh, talk to someone about quitting smoking. I used to smoke. I used to smoke for like 12 years of my life, uh, like a pack a day. Marlboros, the non-filter camels. I was, if I'm going, I'm going in all the way. Right there. Just smoking. I used to smoke and chew at the same time. It was just like, I mean, I know. It's crazy. Cra That's because I just cared about all this. So I'm talking to this lady, I don't know, sorry, 
talking to this lady about quitting smoking because I was like, yeah, I used to smoke and, you know, it's so hard to quit and this and that. And, and she, was, she wanted to quit. And I just said, yeah, you know, I said, one, I said when I became a Christian, I said, it, it, the Holy, I didn't say the Holy Spirit. I said, that's what really, really helped me. And it was because I had the power of the Holy Spirit. And I also had a friend who was a Christian who really kind of held me accountable. But I would get so mad at him when he wouldn't give me my cigarettes. I would just be like, just give me my cigarettes. But eventually, so I used it as a way to just talk about Christianity. But we have to understand something. That it, it, it has to get to a point where I turn the tables and I say, what about you, though? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Because that person can look at me and say, oh, that's great for you. You know what helped me quit smoking? Buddha. Buddha helped me quit smoking. And we're like, oh, yeah, so now we're both smoke-free because of, because of our variety of gods that we have that have helped us quit smoking. It's, this, it's subjective to a point. We have to get to the gospel truth. And the gospel truth is what? The whole world is guilty. That's the gospel truth. That because of our unbelief, then we stand condemned. It's an absolute truth. And it doesn't change for each individual person. And I think that's the hard thing for, for, for us as Christians because we live in a culture of pluralism. So we have to turn that truth to them. We have to ask them what they are going to do. And we have to get them through the power of the Holy Spirit to see that they're sinners, to see that they're guilt, and to see their need for Jesus' righteousness, which is the next logical pr progression in our text today. So he convicts the world of sin, the sin of unbelief, and then he convicts the world of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. I don't know if anyone can see this. Can anyone see that? Can you see the line right in between the two clouds? If you can't, you can, I'll show you my laptop later and you can, you can see it. Um, that line... It's, they say it's hard to imagine any, anything literally hanging from the utility poles across Manhattan to be considered hidden. But throughout Manhattan, throughout the borough, about 18 miles of translucent wire stretches across the skyline, and most people have likely never noticed it. It's called an irub, and its existence is thanks to the Jewish Sabbath. On the Sabbath, which is viewed as a day of rest, observant, observant, people, observant Jewish people aren't allowed to carry anything. They're not allowed to carry books. They're not allowed to carry groceries. They're not even allowed to carry their children outside of the home because doing so is considered work. The irub encircles much of Manhattan. It acts as a symbolic boundary that turns the very public streets of the city 
into a private space, much like the home. This, what do you think this allows the people to do? You guessed it. Carry and work within the boundaries of the irub without having to worry about breaking the Jewish law. Sharon Cohen explains, the Iruvin was created by the sages of the Talmud to get around the traditional prohibitions of carrying house keys, prayer books, canes, walkers, or even children who could not walk on their own. There are Irub across the United States in a ton of metropolitan areas. A cynic, they said, might wonder at the effort required to string wire around huge swaths of public space in order to allow adherents of religion to do whatever what the tenets of that religion would otherwise prohibit. Even some religiously minded observers might find it hard to imagine that God wouldn't regard this as a flagrant concoction of a city-sized loophole. Think about that. God set a standard. Now, that standard, you know, they've misunderstood that standard by not carrying those books. But God has set a standard, and here they've created their own standard, their own line. And as long as they are within that line, they think what? Oh, we're good to go. Well, guess what, folks? We all, we all create our own little irub, don't we? God's standard is, is written out for us. His righteousness is, is shown to us, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. But what we have done, for those who don't believe, is we've created this, this line, this invisible line. And we've said to ourselves, as long as I'm within this line, I'm good to go. As long as I'm within this line, I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to say to God, hey, I stayed within these boundaries. I'm a pretty righteous guy. I've done a lot of good things in my life. I remember, I remember growing, uh, when, I was, when I first became a Christian, and I was in, I was in a ministry, and I remember taking a, 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 a lesson or a teaching about presenting the gospel to unbelievers, and this was a guy who, who was doing this video, and he was a businessman, and he was, he was a professed Christian, and he started explaining how he would present the gospel to someone. And he presented the gospel like a business transaction. And he started by asking the guy, how righteous do you think you are? The guy starts thinking about it, you know, and I, get, I think he might have went over some commandments or anything. And what he did is he allowed the man to give a percentage of righteousness. And I think the man said something like 65%. And then the guy presenting the gospel said, okay, so you're 65% righteous. That's great. Jesus makes up the rest of that righteousness. Oh, okay. I'm 95% righteous. Jesus, I just need 5% of you. The rest of you can stay all the way over there because I have actually contributed to my salvation. Folks, that is heresy. 
we contribute absolutely nothing. I got some deep theology for all of us today, and if we can remember this, it's pretty, it's pretty profound. We're bad. That's just it. And Jesus is the only good that we can have. To present the gospel in a fashion like that is, is just blasphemous to God. Paul says something different, doesn't he? How many, how many in Paul's mind are righteous? Or in God's mind, because Paul is speaking through the Holy Spirit, zero. There are what? Listen to what Paul says here. There are none righteous. Not even, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only are they not righteous, they are very, very depraved. Not only are we not righteous... What does Paul do there? I love this, what he does there. Where does he start? He starts at the head. He starts with understanding and the mouth, right? The lips. Where does he go? To the feet. What's he saying? Head to toe. Head to toe, we have this condition. And the only one who is righteous, his name is Jesus Christ, and it's his righteousness that we need to be convinced of. When he says, because I go to the Father... Jesus is talking about the acceptance of who he is and his sacrifice for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins and he frees us from the penalty of sin. But there's something else that Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He walked the earth in human flesh perfectly. He obeyed what? all of the commandments. He never sinned. So all of that perfection, all of that righteousness is then credited to our account. His resurrection and ascension into heaven reveals the acceptance of him and the only one. And you and I not only are we sinful and guilty, we're in desperate need of his righteousness. This was one of the most freeing truths I've heard when I, when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Growing up in a religion of where I am confessing my sins to another sinful human being, and then being sent to say some prayers or do some good works to pay for those sins, and constantly, constantly, constantly pummeled with guilt. This is the good news, isn't it? 
This is the good news. The good news is that you and I can't work. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us that all of our righteous deeds are what? They're filthy rags. And that's in the context of self-justification, trying to justify ourselves. Please do not think for one second of your life that you can earn any aspect of salvation whatsoever. Please don't ever think that. Please don't think that your works are what is earning your way into heaven. It's his work. And it's his righteousness. Jesus obeyed completely. He never sinned. He died for our sins in that sacrifice. And his life is shown to be acceptable because he rose again from the dead and ascended back to God where he sits now and forever at his right hand and extends all of his righteousness to those who will receive it. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declared declared 100% righteous in God's sight, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done. 100% righteous. And you cannot lose that righteousness, you can't take away from that righteousness, and you can't add to that righteousness. It's a declaration. It's a legal declaration. And he talks about it in Romans. When he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been what? Made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given. It's given. That's the gift. Through who? Through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts, who has faith, who what? Justifies the ungodly, you and me. Their faith is credited as righteousness. This is, this is why... Paul uses such strong language in the book of Galatians. I've said this before. He, he saves some of his strongest language for people who are perverting the gospel of grace because they want to add works to the gospel. You believe in Jesus and. You believe in Jesus and get circumcised. You believe in Jesus and read your Bible. You believe in Jesus and go to church. You believe in Jesus and you give money. No. You believe in Jesus, and you're declared 100% righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. And no one can change that. The, the works are a result of our faith. And, and the world thinks that they, what? They have these invisible lines all around them. And we have to tear them down when we're presenting the gospel. No one's righteous. Your good works are an abomination to God because they are done apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So these are real easy topics to talk about with people, aren't they? <laughs> and and they, you see why? You can see why we need the Holy You can see why they need the Holy Spirit to be convinced of these things. But what a freeing truth. We don't, we don't do for God. He's already done it all for us. There's no, no guilt. He's our guilt offering. There's no more works because Jesus said what? 
It is finished. It's finished. It's all done. It's all paid for. Your account is clear. That's the hope that we're offering. But people want to trust in their own righteousness, which is why they need the Holy Spirit to convict them of that. And, and I think as Christians, I think as Christians too, we, we need continual reminders of this, don't we? Because we can get into the same thing. We can start spinning our plates. Oh, I'm going to a Bible study. I'm reading my Bible faithfully every day. I'm saying nice things to my family when I lose at Smash Brothers. I'm, you know, or whatever it is, I'm doing all these things. I'm giving money to the church. I'm going to church. And we can get caught up in what? Self-righteousness. And then we can look down at other people who are not doing those things. Oh, I'm so much better than you. And we can start doing our invisible lines around our, our worlds. Take them down. Take them down. His righteousness. It, it is one of the most freeing truths of the gospel that all the work is done, and now we live by grace, and we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can now what? Obey. We can follow Him, and we want to follow Him. But the hard truth of it is, is, is if, they don't, if they don't believe that they're, they're sinners, and if they don't believe that they need His righteousness, there's a coming judgment. And I want to take a second just, just for a moment. If, you, if you're at this place and if, if you have ever thought or, or if you're thinking right now that you are somehow working your way to heaven, I want you to stop. And I want you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope. Your only hope of righteousness your only hope of forgiveness, because folks, this is, the, this is the heart of the gospel. We can't, he did, by receiving that, he receives us. But if we don't do that, there is a judgment that will come, and this is the bad news and another very, very popular topic in our culture today. So the final one is, he convicts the world of judgment uh, verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I can't remember if I did this before, so forgive me if you heard it, but maybe, maybe you just forgot, which is a pretty distinct possibility. Um, but in his book, Immeasurable, Sky Jathani writes this. He, he compares two leaders. So, I want, so, two leaders, and I want you to look at these leaders from how the world, the world would judge them, okay? Um, so, here's Leader A. I'm going to tell you about Leader A. Very, very impactful leader. And he lifted an entire nation in a, in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. 
He launched a movement, literally, that has impacted everybody alive today. He set in motion a scientific revolution that produced the first computer, actually, the first jet, and he began human exploration of space, also unlocking the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has been impacted or influenced by this man. He died at a young age, but everyone on the planet knew his name. Another one, second leader. He changed, he changed, uh, he, uh, he actually died, this leader uh, died 21 days before the other previous leader, but his life was radically different. He just ran us, at the height of his influence, he, he ran a small school with a couple students, 100 students about. He wrote a few books that not widely regarded. He was beloved by his family and friends, had a reputation for being intelligent and faithful, but at the time of his death, nobody knew his name, and most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including the previous leader. So, if you're picking from the world, if you had to choose a leader to lead, I don't know, your church maybe, uh, or to lead your, your business, how many would choose leader A? Come on. Yeah, yeah, logical, right? Yeah, leader A, Okay. Now, you're, you're not playing fair, because I know you're thinking Leader A is the bad. What if Leader A is the, is the good guy? You don't know yet. All right, Leader B, all right, we all know, yeah, right. Okay, so Leader A, does anyone know? There you go, Hitler. Yeah, Leader B was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This, I've, I've studied the rise of Hitler in, in a variety of ways because it fascinates me. It really intrigues me, and, and one of the things, the questions that I always ask is, how can a man so evil fool, fool so many people? And how can the judgment of so many people be flawed? And then I read this verse. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of their poor judgment of Jesus Christ. Because the, and they continue to do what? Follow leaders like Hitler. Because Hitler is following Satan. And they continue to disregard people like Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer was following Jesus Christ. Not much has changed today. Here, Jesus says he convicts the world of judgment because Satan has been judged. The leader of this world stands condemned. He stands judged. So they need to see at, 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 their, at the, what they thought was their greatest moment of victory in the death of Jesus Christ is actually their greatest defeat. And Satan, what he thought was his greatest moment of victory, was actually the seal of his fate. He stands condemned. He stands judged. And therefore, everybody who follows Satan is going to follow in the same path. Judgment is coming for those who won't believe in Jesus Christ. 
Their judgment is flawed. And it continues to this day. And I think what people look at us like, and this is it, that's the picture, isn't it? Where are the people running around dressed up in Moses costumes? And I'm not going to ever dress like that. I don't think I would. Is that Moses? I don't know who that is. And, and they, they think it's a big, fat joke. That we're just running around trying to scare people into the kingdom of heaven, manipulate their emotions, make them feel bad so that they can believe in Jesus Christ. It's a flawed judgment. It continues to this day. D.A. Carson says, All false judgment is related to him who was a liar from the beginning, whose children we are, if we echo his values. If he stands condemned by the triumph of the cross, the false judgment of those who follow in his train is doubly exposed. The world needs to see that they can't see. They're blinded. And they're following Satan, who is and will be ultimately judged. And trust me, they are following in his train, literally. This was, I don't know, I, I don't know if anyone saw this the other night at the Grammys. But this is how far we've come. Whether it was a satanic ritual or not, it shows not only how accepting we have become, but how bold we are in thinking that it's okay and even award-worthy, and that for the devil is for our mere pleasure and enjoyment as they sing a song here titled, Unholy. It's a joke. There's no such thing as Satan. There's definitely no such thing as judgment. And they mock it. And it shows us how unafraid people are. That one day there's going to be an accountability. This is the news people don't want to hear. And this is the news that Christians are afraid to tell. And we can't. It's an essential truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that if they continue to reject him and therefore follow Satan, they are going to be condemned along with Satan. And people don't want to believe in it. The plate of Satan will be the plate of all of those who follow in his footsteps condemnation. But, but we know that Peter tells us. Because what people are thinking is what? what do you, oh, you got, what are you talking about? Why are you holding up those signs? Why are you talking about hell? Everything's been what? The same. Nothing's happening. The world goes on. Just as if it always has. You guys have been saying this for years. God's not going to do anything. And what does Peter say? It escapes their notice. 
They don't know. They don't know that the heavens and the earth were created by God Almighty. And they don't know that those same heavens and earth are reserved for what? Fire and judgment. It's coming. And we have to tell people about it. Now, not like this. <laughs> we can we just say it in a gentle way, <laughs> in a tactful way. But the reason why we should get so worked up in churches about it is because we can handle it, right? We know it. And if we truly love them, we're going to share this truth. That's love, whether they disregard us or not. And we know that they're going to continue to do so. We're the haters. We're the mockers. We're the intolerant. We're the biased. All of it. What is it? It's a flawed judgment. They will call evil good and good evil. It's a flawed judgment. And the Holy Spirit works through us to point that out. So Easter's coming, maybe you'll get together with your family and try to bring up these topics, see how it goes. Maybe just one. Let's just talk about sin, <laughs> about judgment. I mean, when you look at them, right, when you look at them, these are heavy. There's no doubt. But we see that they're absolutely crucial to the gospel. It is the gospel. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we have to go back to what? To verse 7. What, what does he say in verse 7? I will send him to you, all of you, all of us. And when he comes, he is going to do these things through you, through you. The sound of the gavel opening the Republican National Convention on July 31st, 2000, was not really the sound of the gavel. When doing sound tests, the audio engineer for the convention discovered that the noise of the gavel actually that was made was not loud enough or impressive enough to fill the huge hall in Philadelphia. So he pre-recorded the ideal gavel sound that was played over loudspeakers when the moderator struck the desk with the stand-in gavel. The gavel that was used served as a switch to trigger an electronically reproduced gavel pulse. What a picture. The power behind our words are in the Holy Spirit. He produces the necessary pulse. He produces the necessary impact. You and I swing the gavel and let him speak to the hearts and minds of those who hear it as we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment warning of that final coming gavel sound. Father,
Lord, this is not easy in a world that does not want to hear these truths. And there was a point in all of our lives when we didn't want to hear them either. Lord, it is only through the power of your Holy Spirit that can bring such conviction, such truth to the hearts and minds of those who don't know you. We are privileged to share that truth, but Lord, we ask that we are emboldened to do so. Help us to wisely proclaim these things to a world that needs to hear them. Work through us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.